midterm exams. For the last two weeks or so, university students have been writing midterm exams. And it's common to see students huddled together as they prepare or crouched over scrumpled up pages of handwritten notes in the hallways. And as they walk in, you can tell that they've burned the proverbial midnight oil to prepare for their exams. And then there's that moment when, you know, they're there and you're waiting and the whole room is charged with a sense of anticipation. And as you can imagine, there's a, always an increased level of anxiety among students because so much seems to depend on an hour and a half of one's academic life as a student, and the pressure is on. Our society puts a strong emphasis on drawing a line in the sand and saying, if you want to move on, you need to cross this line. And the only way that you can do this is if you demonstrate a certain amount of knowledge, if you give back something of the information that you've learned, if you provide your teacher with the right answer. Well, how that plays out in the realm of education is one thing. But what I find distressing is that we seem to be really good at projecting the exam model on our relationship with God. It, it shapes the way that we live our Christian life. It shapes our understanding of salvation. We think that at some point we're going to face not a midterm exam, but the final exam. An exam that has our final, our eternal destiny at stake. And so we go through life kind of like students who, who enjoy university life, who can have wonderful discussions with other students, who can engage in sports, can take in some extra activities, attend events, enjoy lectures, and all kinds of good things like shared meals, chapels, worship nights. But at the end of the term, there's that ominous final exam. And so in a similar way, we go through life and we have a wide range of experiences. We spend our time and money enjoying life, building relationships. We seek fulfillment in so many things. But in the deep recesses of our minds and in the deeper recesses of our souls, because we're Christians, we vaguely remember that this life will end and there's going to be the final exam. And I think it's fair to say that many Christians live their lives kind of like this. But the problem is that no one looks forward to a final exam. Midterms might give everyone a chance to make necessary adjustments to teaching methods in the case of the professor or to study habits in the case of a student, but the final exam is, well, final. You get one crack at it and that's it. Final carries a lot of weight. A lot hangs in the balances with a final exam, and I trust you begin to see how this can be very problematic when we project the exam model on our relationship with God, on our lives, and what we often term the final judgment or the last day. And it's also problematic when we impose this kind of lens on the reading of Scripture. I think the Gospel reading for today is a case in point. I mean, the word gospel really means good news. But it can be hard to see where the good, goodness is in the passage. It can be difficult and somewhat daring to say, thanks be to God, after our reading when only 50% of the key players of the parable make the cut. 
and they don't get a second chance. Now, although I realize that we began following the church calendar partway through the year, this is a good time to remember that we're actually coming to the end of the journey as we turn to Matthew 25 today and for the next two Sundays. And so it might be a little bit of a surprise when, you know, such warm weather today, but in four weeks we begin the Advent season. Advent is the beginning of the church year. But at the opposite end of the spectrum today, we're on the home stretch. And what the lectionary has done for us is, is reorient our lives around the story of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, the one who was to come. And it's a story that has taught us to wait and to celebrate, to repent, to respond in gratitude and joy, to consider the day-to-day -day implications of belonging to God as the community of the baptized, as an Easter people. And we've not just listened to stories about Jesus, we've met Jesus himself. We don't travel very along, very far along the plot line, however, before we realize that we can't really make any sense of Jesus apart from the kingdom of God. He is both the messenger and the message. And Jesus embodies, he announces, and he shows us what the kingdom is and why it matters. It, it can be notoriously difficult to, to define what the kingdom of God is, but probably one of the best ways to understand the kingdom of God is to see it as God's design for the world as he really wants it. The kingdom is, is the world the way God initially intended it to be. And if the kingdom of God is a central theme in scripture, failing to take the kingdom seriously opens us up to missing the whole point of the story. And without the kingdom lens, it's really easy to make the story about me and Jesus, where somehow it ends up more about me than about Jesus. But in this section of Matthew, this is his fifth discourse, uh, starting back in chapter 24, Jesus is describing the end of the age. And after talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the disciples come to Jesus privately as he sits on the Mount of Olives and they ask him, tell us, when will this be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And as Jesus begins to answer the question, he says, beware that no one leads you astray. And then he outlines world's events that will mark the end of the, of the world and, and he provides some pastoral teaching for the community of the faithful. He gives them object lessons based on the fig tree, and he says, make sure you, you can read the signs just as a farmer reads his plants so that he knows where he is in the growing season. Don't expect a harvest in spring, for example. At the same time, Jesus warns about speculation about the when and the where. It's not up to us to know. Our task is to watch, to be ready, and to wait. The Son of Man, he says, is coming at an unexpected hour. And so Jesus calls us to watchfulness in a variety of ways through history lessons. Remember the flood, he says? The people in Noah's days weren't prepared either. And Jesus, Jesus says, you know, if, if you knew when the thief was going to come to plunder your house, you would be waiting for him, right? Jesus talks about stewardship. Remember, the master of the house is going to come back and everyone has to give an account. 
And it's interesting because the theme of delay comes up again and again. So how shall we live when we're waiting and there seems to be significant delay in God's plans? Now that's particularly the theme for next week and God willing, I'm preaching again. So we can leave that for now and come back to that next Sunday. But in the passage today, there's a different emphasis. To illustrate his point, Jesus turns to one of the more common, and I might say one of the the favorite images we have of the kingdom of God that we find in Scripture. It's all about a wedding banquet. Now, the purpose of the parable is not to, you know, invite us to say, well, what does this mean? Well, what exactly is all that? No, no, it's, it's it's a lens, it's a lesson by which we come to understand the kingdom of God. And it needs to be the way that we approach the scripture here. There's teaching here about the message that Jesus preached, that he announced, that he demonstrated, that he embodies. And so it is, it is a time of, of, of celebration. And Jesus describes a scene like this. He says, there's five, ten bridesmaids who took lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And the idea would have been to ushered the groom back to the bride's home. Lanterns in the middle of the night would have both illuminated the path and celebrated the arrival. And we're told right up front that five of the bridesmaids were foolish and five of the bridesmaids were wise. And the distinguishing factor is that the wise had extra oil in their lamps while the foolish had none. And it's here that Jesus introduces the idea of delay again. People were expecting the groom to come earlier, but as he delayed, um, they, they just became discouraged. Delay, intense waiting, doesn't result in, in expectation being realized, and that translates into discouragement and, and despair and disappointment and then apathy. Minutes drag into hours, and as you wait intensely for something that you really want to happen, time seems to tick so slowly. And as a result, the excited chatter of the bridesmaids has quieted down. And one by one, the bridesmaids begin to yawn. And finally, they're all wise and foolish, fast asleep. The bridegroom just took too long. But then at midnight, there, there's, there's exactly when people would have entered into their deep sleep, there's a shout, look, there's the bridegroom. He's coming, he's coming. Come on, let's go to meet him. And the girls jump up and they trim their lamps and then suddenly the foolish bridesmaids, foolish bridesmaids realize that they've got a problem. While they slept, their lamps kept on burning and, and because the bridegroom took much longer than they had expected, They're running out of oil. And so the foolish bridesmaids turned to the wise ones and the the ones who had brought extra flasks along, and they said, give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the wise bridesmaids refused to share. They go, no, if we give you some, there won't be enough for us either, so you better go and buy some for yourself. And it's interesting because interpreters in the Bible today say, you know, how can these people be so selfish? Like, I, so that's what we complain, but of course, the girls, the girls would have said, we can't meet the bridegroom in the dark with no lamps. 
There's no street lights at this time. There's no neon signs. It would have been completely dark. And so the foolish girls have no choice but to find a store that's open at midnight and buy some oil. Well, in the meantime, the five, five wise bridesmaids join the bridegroom and lead the procession to the wedding banquet. And the owner of the house welcomes them in, and then he closes the door. While the foolish, unprepared bridesmaids purchase their oil, they refill their lamps, and now they make it back to the house, but the door is closed. They, they demand entry, but the one who is identified as the Lord tersely responds, truly I tell you, I don't know you. And he doesn't open the door. Go away. And so it looks like a final exam. There's only one opportunity. You only get one crack at it. If you don't pass the exam, it's a closed door. Half the class fails, and the door remains closed. But here's where we need to stop and think a little bit more deeply. Once more, it's, it's a kingdom lens that frees us up from narrowly judging the foolish bridesmaids and thinking that it's an all-for-nothing or all-or-nothing final exam. If you fail here, the door closes, and you're forever excluded. Now, no, the last scene of the biblical story that, and the story that stretches from creation to new creation isn't first and foremost about an event, an exam. It's about a person. And the second coming is linked to the first coming. And the gospel is the story about the kingdom of God breaking into history in the person of Jesus Christ. And it was the fulfillment of all the prophetic hopes and dreams that were an essential part of Israel's sacred history. And so weekly readings at the synagogue and temple would have reminded them again and again of God's commitment to his people and the fact that the Messiah was coming was common knowledge. It lived at the very core of Jewish self-understanding. And yet, strangely enough, when Jesus came the first time, he's disappointed at the lack of readiness to receive the kingdom. Anna and Simeon waited patiently to welcome the Messiah. The religious guild of scholars, theologians, and priests, Pharisees, did not. Shepherds were ready to welcome his coming. Herod was not. The wise men from the east were ready. The soldiers who slaughtered the innocent in Bethlehem were not. And the list goes on and on. And while Jesus laments that throughout the gospel, here he shifts the focus, and he gives us the challenge and the warning of the second coming. The parable clearly looks forward to the final inauguration of the kingdom in all its majesty. It looks forward to the day when God will put everything right in the world, when things will finally be the way that God intended them to be. It will be a glorious coming followed by a magnificent banquet because the bridegroom is finally here. And the faithful will be welcomed to the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it will be spectacular because the Lamb is the very center of everything. Jesus knows that there are nice, sincere individuals who, who talk about Jesus, who regularly remind others about Jesus, 
but they won't be ready when he comes. In part, because Jesus comes according to his timetable and not ours, and so we can become discouraged, or we can put life on autopilot. And given that Jesus delays his coming, it's, it's hard to maintain hope alive sometimes. It's hard to keep our enthusiasm up because we thought that Jesus would have intervened in our world by now in some decisive way. And instead of waiting and watching, it's so easy to become apathetic because it's same old, same old. And yet here as contemporary readers, we also need to ask, couldn't another part of the reason that we put off thinking about the second coming be that we thought about it as a, a final exam? And that we're deeply suspicious of the intention of the doorkeeper. What happens if we make it to the door only to be met with, too late, go away, I don't know you, you didn't make the cut. And so in fear, we'd rather not talk about it. Now it needs to be stressed that Jesus stands in the tradition of the prophets, and you can't read the prophets very long before you realize that when they describe the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, Yahweh comes both in judgment and salvation. And yes, there is a door. And the kingdom has a door that can and does close. And Jesus, like the prophets before him, insists that sincerity is not enough that trying harder isn't enough, that trying to get in on someone else's credit card or relying on someone else's oil doesn't work, that commitment to Christ, that love to Christ, that faithful discipleship isn't something that you can borrow from someone else. Neither can it be loaned to someone else. Each person must participate in the kingdom with their own resources. A lack of faithfulness, a lack of preparedness, isn't the fault of the judge. And this, too, is part of the Christian message. In the light of the Day of Judgment, Paul presses Timothy to preach the gospel, whether it's convenient or not. And precisely because of the final judgment, Paul preaches a powerful message of reconciliation. And I'd be remiss if I didn't remind you of these truths. The kingdom includes narrow gates and crosses, where believers are called to practice self-denial as we align ourselves or realign ourselves with God's purposes for the world. Nevertheless, and here's the point, the good news in the passage is that Jesus is telling us all of this to prepare us so that we stop, so that we think. Jesus paints a picture with familiar images to get, get us to, to stop and to think, to remind us that history, our history, is moving to a particular goal, a goal that Scripture describes as the return of the cosmic Christ whose rule embraces heaven and earth. And so Jesus says, keep awake, keep awake. You don't know the day or the hour. So review your life. Think about your priorities. And so it's a great moment to ask ourselves, what is it that defines me? What gets me up in the morning? What, what, what do I live for? Could it be that 
In the light of Christ's delay, we struggle to define which story really defines our lives. Is it the story of the kingdom or is it the American dream? And all too often, the competing story of the American dream wins out. There are so many voices that tell us that our goal in life is more about a comfortable retirement than about the coming of the kingdom of God. You know, it's fascinating because when I've preached this in, in other parts of the world where there's oppression and poverty and violence, the coming of Christ is good news and people go out of church, they're excited. Wouldn't it be tragic if you spend our lives trying to climb social ladders that brings prestige in our society only to realize that it's been an exercise in missing the point. But because what defines the bridegrooms is being either wise or foolish, we can recognize that this is not a moral issue here. It's about having discernment. It's about knowing what really matters in life. To be foolish is to hear the gospel of the kingdom and not make serious adjustments to your life. It would be like the foolish man in the Sermon on the Mount who, who builds his house, who builds his life on the sand. A life that's built on a shaky foundation cannot deliver what it promises. It cannot sustain us when troubles hit. And in a similar way, it's foolish to try to confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord when our lamps have gone out and we don't live with hope. One author comments that it isn't easy to listen to a message like this today. He writes, we've lost our capacity to live passionately for the long haul. Perseverance is a lost art. We're always looking for something new, something exciting, something innovative in an instant world. Any form of delay is disheartening. And if there's not instant results, we're not interested. I spoke with someone who said to me, I always buy with Amazon Prime, but if I can't get what I want to order within two days, I cancel the order. Of course, it's also possible to have a, a naive optimism about the end of history, and that, that, that's what the prophet Amos needed to address. Context is everything in Scripture, remember? And Amos is, is particularly and primarily addressing the northern tribes during a time of religious apostasy. The people worshipped the shrines that King Jeroboam II had erected to keep them from traveling to Jerusalem. And as a result of their increasingly pagan practices, they fell into the trap of thinking that they could manipulate God by showing up for the regular cycle of religious feasts, just as the pagan religious systems taught. In fact, it seems that they had domesticated God. They had made him nice. They had chained him into some kind of complacent divine being that would be delighted that they showered him with gifts and bring sacrifices to him. It was a tit-for-tat religion. You give to God so that God gives to you. And so Amos, when he, in, in, in prophetic, true prophetic tradition, calls Israel to repentance and warns of judgment, they don't care. They assume that they've got all the boxes checked off and there's nothing to worry about. 
they actually look forward to the day of the Lord. But Amos tries to wake them up with a shock treatment to their religious system. Amos says, you, you, you don't know what you're saying. And the imagery is, 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 is graphic. He says, it's like, like a man that, you know, he's walking along the road and all of a sudden he sees a, a lion. And so he turns and he runs someplace else and, and there he runs into to a bear. So he's, he's panicking again and he runs to, to his house and he opens the door. He puts his hand on the wall to kind of just take a breath. And, and then all of a sudden there's a snake that bites him. He says, you can't avoid this. There's no way around it. Judgment is inescapable. The northern tribes have this mistaken view of God and his role as judge. They have, they have misunderstood the place of sacrifice and they've grossly underestimated the criteria that will be used when the final judgment, when the day of Yahweh comes. He says it's not about sacrifices or packed pews or overflowing collection plates. It's about acting justly. It's about act, allowing justice to flow like a life-giving river through the land. And so Amos calls them to reevaluate their thinking about God, about their religious practices, about their lifestyle. But notice, I, Amos's goal is, is not to send people away. It's to bring them back to God, to bring them back to a life that's consistent with God's purposes in the world. God longs for them to be in a proper relationship with him again and to live for him once more. And then 1 Thessalonians also offers us a key insight into what is going on in, in our passage. Writing in the context of Christian hope for our loved ones who have died, Paul reminds us of the final chapter of world history, not in terms of a final exam, but in terms of the glorious return of Jesus Christ. You see, Christians, we're not waiting for something. We are waiting, longing for, straining for the return of someone, of Jesus, the Lord who will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will be raised first. And then we who are still alive in the final day will join Jesus in his victory parade, caught up not in some secret premillennial rapture, but in Jesus' public triumphant return to this earth. It will be a time of both judgment and salvation. And Paul bookends his teaching here with two imperatives. He says, do not be uninformed. Wake up, stay awake. The bridegroom might be delayed, but it doesn't mean he's not coming. Keep a look for him. And then the second imperative is, is in verse 18. Therefore, because he is coming, encourage one another with these words. You know, any discussion of the return of Christ can only be encouraging news if we recognize that we're talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. It's not some final exam. It's about our Savior. And if we know that someone that we dearly love is coming to see us, we can't wait until we hear the knock on the front door. And we might get up a few times if we think there might be a car slowing down and we, we get out the window to check or to change the 
image a bit. If, if somebody you love has been gone for a while and, and they're flying home, you know, and you're in that waiting area, you're looking at the boards to see whether or not the flight has arrived. And when it touches down, when, when it's there, your anticipation just increases and you're on your feet and you're watching the doors as they open up and you're straining to see when the person you love will actually come through that door. And it's with that kind of hopeful, joyful expectation that we should look to the future as we pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And Maranatha is our watchword again. So if Matthew's gospel inspires up to hopeful waiting, Paul reminds us that due preparation for the return of Christ is a matter of faith, of trust. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that. We believe that Jesus shed his blood on the cross for us. We believe that Jesus rose to show that the sacrifice was enough. Paul is bringing us to the very center of the Christian story. We believe this. We also believe that God will gather followers of Christ to be with Christ. That at the end of world history, Jesus the Lord will return from heaven. There will be the archangel's cry. There will be the trumpet blast. But the eyes, all eyes, will be on Jesus, the returning king. He's the bridegroom who comes for his bride, for his church. And because he's the bridegroom, he's coming because he loves us and we love him in return. And we stand on tiptoe and strain for the future because we know and believe that when the last day comes and we look into our judge's eyes, we will recognize that it is the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, our beloved bridegroom. And he will stretch out his nail-pierced hands to embrace us. And we will have nothing, nothing to fear. Eternal life is not a final exam. It is a gift that we receive by faith. It is a gift that we receive by faith. Faith in the one who is completely faithful and absolutely trustworthy. And so the invitation today is stay awake. Keep awake. Keep awake. Encourage one another. Our Lord Jesus Christ is coming. Keep hope alive. Remember that we're not living in a random universe where we don't know what's happening. No, no. This is Christ's story, and this is your story. This is your future because this is Christ's future, and you belong to him. Live with passionate hope because, as Paul so boldly proclaims, and so we shall be with the Lord forever. Amen. Let's pray.
Holy Spirit, set our hearts on fire with love to Christ once again. We thank you for your word to us this morning that reminds us that we're part of a story that has a goal, has an end in the person of Jesus Christ. So often we live our lives by sheer inertia and days stretch into weeks and weeks into months and months into years. We thank you that you invite us today to stop and to think and to hope and to encourage one another again. May we live as people, as an Easter people, that is looking forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, to the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will dwell. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.